Please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 12. Hosea 11, 1 to 12. Following that, we will read our sermon passage, which is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Matthew 2, 13 to 23. First, Hosea 11, verses 1 to 12. Brothers and sisters, this is the Holy Word of God. Cherish it just as you would cherish fine gold. For the Lord speaks to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, as though they call out to the Most High. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, and is faithful to the Holy One. This ends the reading of the Old Testament passage, and now turning to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at the first verse of Matthew 2, and read through the end. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that, was, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you again for your word. We're thankful for these portions of it that we've heard today from both the Old and the New Testaments. We are thankful that you have condescended to us. You have made yourself known to us. You speak to us in your word. We pray that you teach us from it today. Please, O Lord, give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, by now, you know this scenario very well. Whenever a politician, whenever a sports figure, whenever somebody who's public, publicly known, gets in any kind of trouble because of some sort of illicit behavior, whether it's adultery or drug abuse, they begin to go into damage control, don't they? And this happens so much so today that most of the public just react with cynicism. What else is new? And it seems that the main concern of one who has been caught in some act of indecency or another is just keeping his office if he's a politician or his endorsement contracts if he is a uh, professional athlete or movie star. And inevitably, the press will begin to talk about what the person needs to do to fix himself. All of the PR agents come out in droves. What can this person do to fix things? And one word that you never hear in the news reports about what needs to be done by this person or that person is the word repentance. Never once do you hear someone who is caught in some serious kind of scandal in a public setting, whether it's a politician or an athlete, say, I repent, and I'm truly sorry for the harm that I've done, and I promise that I will endeavor never to do such things again. You don't hear it. Instead, another R word is, 
has taken the place of repentance. And that word is rehabilitate. As in, here are five things this celebrity needs to do to rehabilitate his image. The process of image rehabilitation might be a recent innovation, but image rehabilitation isn't only for offenses committed in our day. Of course, we see this when we read hagiographies, which is essentially, uh, literally comes from the Greek word for saints. Hagiography is making a saint out of a person who was a really bad person to begin with. And that happens all of the time in biographies. And so offense are, uh, uh, attempts are being made to rehabilitate the images of those who are long dead. And one example of this is Her- Herod the Great, who's been dead for 2,000 years. About 15 years ago or so, National Geographic magazine decided it was going to rehabilitate the image of Herod the Great. It had a cover article dedicated to Herod and his architectural achievements. And in that article was this statement. Herod guided his kingdom to new prosperity and power. Yet today, he's best known as the sly and murderous monarch of Matthew's gospel who slaughtered every male infant in Bethlehem in an unsuccessful attempt to kill the newborn Jesus, the prophesied king of the Jews. Herod is almost certainly innocent of this crime, of which there is no report apart from Matthew's account. National Geographic wrote that article. Why? Because if people had heard anything about Herod the Great, it was probably that the man was virtually insane, if not certifiably insane, and that he murdered these innocent little children in the little town of Bethlehem. Now the author, ironically, after making this statement about how most likely this event did not happen, he immediately follows the statement with a quick list of those Herod did kill. And the list is very long. But he's already discredited the main source, the one source by which most people have come to know anything about the man, Herod. Now, this is nothing new. National Geographic did not uh, innovate this approach to rehabilitating Herod's image. For years, there have been scholars who have been trying to discredit this account in Matthew's Gospel. And the author of the article is counting on the fact that people will focus on his statement that Matthew was wrong about Herod ordering these babies to be killed. He's trusting that people won't seek evidence, that they'll automatically discredit Matthew because that's an ideological document written by a human being who had specific and clear interest in trying to promote the person of Jesus Christ into one who is divine. The author of this article wants people to forget that Herod, based on his willingness to murder numerous people in his own household, was perfectly capable of ordering the murder of babies in a small neighboring town. And that is the key in our day and age to rehabilitating an image. Put something else out there so that the people will forget the really terrible things that have been done. And the problem with this is that it does nothing, nothing about our sinfulness and guilt before a holy God. The forgetfulness of people does not equal forgiveness of God. This can come only by being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this. This passage calls us to confess Jesus as our King and Savior, who gives salvation to all who repent and believe in Him. This passage calls us to confess Jesus as our King and Savior, who gives salvation to all who repent and believe in Him. The first point of the sermon, of which there are three, is into exile. The second, from weeping to gladness. And the third, the despised branch of Jesse. Again, point one, into exile. Point two, from weeping to gladness. And the third point, the, des- the despised branch of Jesse. So let's look at the first point, the first part of the sermon, into exile. Now, in that first half of, uh, of chapter two of Matthew's gospel, which wasn't directly, specifically a part of the sermon passage, we read that Herod learns of the birth of the one the Magi's called the King of the Jews. Apparently Herod had not heard about this birth of the so-called King of the Jews. And as soon as Herod hears this, his mind starts racing. He sees this little indeterminate, faceless baby down to the southeast of him in Jerusalem in the town of Bethlehem as a threat. He's very concerned. And so he wants to figure out a way to rid himself of this threat. Now what he thought of as his kingdom was threatened by a baby, though he was merely a client king to the Romans. He was there under the good auspices and the good graces of the Roman emperor. And so Herod being threatened, his kingdom being threatened, he asks the wise men to bring word to him about where Jesus is so that he can go and worship him. And so we read that the wise men went and they worshipped Jesus in Bethlehem, but they were warned in a dream not to report back to Herod. And so they returned to their country by a different route. We read in verse 13 in our sermon passage that Joseph was also warned in a dream by an angel of the Lord to rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now think about this for a moment. Egyptian was the place that Israel, the people of God, wanted to get away from. The promised land was the place that the babies of Israel should be safe. And of course, the Messiah should have been most safe among his own people and in his own land. And yet he has to flee. He has to get away. His father, Joseph, his his earthly father stepfather, we more properly should say, he takes Jesus and Mary and they go to Egypt. They departed Bethlehem under the cover of night. And Egypt, in many ways, was a logical place for them to go. They could have easily, fairly easily, uh, gone to the east, gone south of the Dead Sea, over into the Transjordan region. But Egypt was 70 miles to the south of Bethlehem. And there still was a large Jewish population there. And as verse 15 says, they remained there until the death of Herod. They were safe there. But there was another reason that God sent them to Egypt. And the second part of verse 15 spells that out. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now Matthew there is quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We just read that. 
And the first part of Hosea 11 is, is actually an historical account. God is reciting to his people through the prophet Hosea what he has already done for them. Matthew takes this as a prophecy pointing to the future. Hosea is writing a thousand years after God brought his people out of Egypt and took them into the promised land. Matthew understands that Hosea is prophesying not about what happened in the past, but what is going to happen for Hosea in the future. The larger context of the book of Hosea is this. It's Israel's repeated unfaithfulness to God. But just as equally, the theme is God's undiminished faithfulness to Israel. Over and over in this book, God, speaking through the prophet Hosea, reminds his people how unfaithful they have been. They are an adulterous wife. And you remember Hosea is called to take unto himself as his wife a prostitute who is the the living embodiment of Israel. And Hosea, over and over again, has to go and rescue her from these houses of of impunity, of, of, of sinfulness. Israel is the adulterous wife to whom Gomer, Hosea's wife, points. They are disobedient children. And Hosea 11 verse 2 says, The more that they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And the broader context of Hosea clearly shows that Israel is not the true son of God. And so 11 verse 1, chapter 11 verse 1 of Hosea can only be speaking about Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Out of Egypt I called my Son. Jesus, by taking refuge with His parents in Egypt, as Jacob and his sons had done thousands of years before, shows that He is the true Son to whom Hosea is referring. Matthew here, early on in our passage, he's demonstrating that Jesus Christ is true Israel. If Scripture speaks of Israel as God's son, it can only do so provisionally. If Scripture speaks of Israel as God's son, its ultimate and primary reference point is Jesus Christ himself. He is Israel. And so when Jesus came up out of Egypt with his parents as an infant, this prophecy of Hosea was fulfilled, and Matthew cites it as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. This takes us to the second part of the sermon, from weeping to gladness. Those wise men, these magi, they showed their wisdom in not returning to Herod. They were warned in a dream not to go back. They weren't specifically told why, but they probably could guess. And when Herod found out that the wise men had tricked him, that they went home by another way, not passing through Jerusalem, verse 16 says that he became furious. And we read there that he sent... And he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Now in the previous section of the sermon, we saw that Matthew clearly showed the parallel between Jesus going to Egypt and the Exodus. And now he's making a parallel here about Jesus, between Jesus and Moses. In Exodus chapter 1, you can read just prior to Moses' birth, that a new Pharaoh had risen to the throne who saw all the newborn babies of Israel as a threat to his kingdom. He, would, he was afraid that they would reach 
size, such a size in the population that they could come to overpower him in time. And so the king commanded the Hebrew midwives when they were delivering a Hebrew baby to kill it if it was a son. And the midwives, instead of fearing what Pharaoh might do to them, they feared God and they did not kill the babies. And so Israel in Egypt continued to grow and grow and grow. Pharaoh then commanded the Egyptian people, whenever they saw an infant son of the Hebrews, to cast the baby into the Nile River to drown him. Now Herod was just as deliberate in his murderous scheme as Pharaoh had been. When he realized that the wise men had fled, verse 16 says that he calculated the age Jesus likely was, and he sent men to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years old or younger. And we don't know how many babies that was. We do know that Bethlehem was a very small town. And given the small uh, population of Bethlehem and its surrounding regions at that time, scholars suggest that the number of male infants who were killed would have been around 20 to 30. Now that's not being said to diminish the heinousness of this sin, this crime. It's not at all. But we need to be realistic. There wasn't probably wasn't enough of a population base for it to have been in the hundreds of male babies who were under the age of two years old or under for Herod to have slaughtered. But still, this sin is a heinous sin. And this incident has become known as the slaughter of the innocents or the massacre of the innocents. And interestingly, for what it's worth, I'm not promoting it, but the Catholic Church regards these babies as the first Christian martyrs and it has a feast day in their honor on December 28th. I'm not saying we should copy that, but it does at least give some indication of the significance of this event. And it's no surprise, therefore, that the national, as the National Geographic article says, that Herod is best known for this incident. Killing one baby, much less dozens, much less hundreds, much less millions, killing one baby is a heinous crime. And the historical records of Herod, which are extensive, thanks to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, they give no indication that Herod ever had any amount, any bit of remorse or that he repented for this atrocity. In fact, Josephus wrote that just five days before Herod died, while he was on his deathbed, Herod had another one of his sons killed. This is the evil that this man possessed, the evil ways in which he behaved. And so every indication that we get from historical accounts is that Herod died an unrepentant murderer. Now as an aside... And in light of the news of this past week, of the strong possibility, the hope that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade, even today, babies are still threatening a lot of kingdoms, aren't they? Babies are regarded seemingly by a majority of people in our society, although I'm not sure that that's true, but they are regarded as an inconvenience at best and something to be avoided at all costs at worst. Motherhood, fatherhood, these are things that are to be dreaded by a certain segment of our, our population. We are moving further and further away from a culture of life. We now see human beings, babies, and the elderly as inconveniences that simply need to be discarded. Well, why is that? There, there, there's, a, there's a kernel of truth in this mentality, isn't there? I don't, I'm not promoting it. I don't endorse it. But there's a kernel of truth. When you have a baby, 
You are no longer at the center of your universe. The baby takes over. <laughs> it just does. It's the way it is. That baby, especially an infant, there is no way that it can survive without the love and the care and the nurture of his or her parents. Simply can't. And so these little kingdoms that we each as individuals cobble together for ourselves, they are obliterated when a baby comes into existence in our families. Our nice, neat houses, which we have no fear walking through in the dead of night, are no longer safe with our children in our homes. Our nice cars are always dirty and littered with all manner of detritus related to child rearing. We are no longer the kings on the thrones of our kingdoms when babies enter the scene. And I think it is for that reason that many, many people are choosing not to have children. They don't want babies. They don't want their routines upset. They don't want... Uh, to, to no longer be the center of their own lives. That child cannot live without you. Your kingdom will be dismantled. And brothers and sisters, that is a good thing. It breaks apart the idols that you have built up, the idol of yourself that you've built up. Children, and I think most husbands can say this, just like wives, are excellent agents of sanctification. They help us in tremendous ways. God is king. And you are not. And having a little baby who is utterly dependent on you for everything, it serves as a good reminder that you are not a king or a queen. You are a servant. <laughs> and without you, that child will not live. And so in our day, abortion serves the same purpose as Herod's slaughter of the innocents, as Pharaoh's slaughter of the innocents. Herod did not want his kingdom taken away from him by a baby. And neither do many in our society today. Recently, I was invited to go to a wedding of a, of a good friend of mine. He was out of town. I had to take a flight to get there. And Jen and I were both invited. But our children were not invited. And it was clear from the indication that children were not to be brought. That's the way in which much of our society views children today. That they're problematic. They're noisy. They bring chaos. They might raise their hands in church <laughs> or yell out something unexpected. And for many in society, that's a problem. Because our nice, neat little worlds are broken apart. Well, those babies in Bethlehem were no more viable than a baby in the womb. So this issue of viability in the womb, and at what point is a baby, if, if, if they were brought out of the womb, could they survive? It, it's, it's irrelevant. A two-year-old baby cannot live without, without parents. No more than a one-second-old fertilized egg in the womb of his or her mother. We celebrate pregnancies here in our church. We don't frown upon little children who cry out in the worship service, though I must say sometimes 
even though I'm loud, I have a little bit of trouble competing with some of our more vocal covenant youth. Those cries in a worship service are far more pleasant sounds than the wailing that took place in Bethlehem as those babies were being slaughtered. We love our babies' noises. We love our children's noises. We love it when they throw the pastor off from his train of thought. We love it. Babies will knock you off of the throne of the little kingdom you've built for yourself, and that is a good thing. And if Roe is struck down, this is something we need to keep in mind. It will change things. The, the, the pregnancy center that we support, they, they will have to, and they already are beginning to change their footing. They're beginning to, to intervene prior to any babies being conceived. They're trying to train young people not to engage in behavior that results in the conception of babies. They're trying to get into schools and to help them learn ways not to do this. But if Roe is struck down, opportunities for adoption may increase. And so I want to challenge those of us here who, who, who might be able, and I know that not everyone is able, to prayerfully consider whether the Lord would have you to take one of these little ones that previously would have been slaughtered in the womb. One of the things that those who oppose pro-life love to say, and it's not true, but they love to say it, is that the only thing you pro-lifers care about is that baby in the womb, and you don't care at all about it after it's born. And it's not true. But we need to work even harder to prove that it's not true. To provide support for both the babies and the mothers. And in those cases where the mother simply cannot, cannot take care of the child, we may need to be prepared to have our lives disrupted again, (laughs) perhaps for the first time. Okay, that was an aside. It was a lengthy aside. Back to the text. God ensured that his son was saved by sending him and his family to Egypt for refuge. But the death of those children is a sorrowful event. In verse 18, Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31.15 as both a fulfillment of prophecy and a lament A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew, under the inspiration, the guidance, being borne up by the Holy Spirit, writes these words to mark that grievous day. A momentary pause to mark to make significant the deaths of these babies. He doesn't simply gloss over it. He doesn't ignore that it happened. He marks it. And he marks it by quoting from Jeremiah 31.15. He marks it by showing that, that Rachel is weeping for these babies. Now in Jeremiah 15, it's uh, 31.15, it's God who says that Rachel is weeping. You remember that Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob. He was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel died just after giving birth to Benjamin, at least a thousand years before the prophecy in Jeremiah was spoken. Rachel, she couldn't have wept for these babies that were slaughtered under Herod's direction. And in the wider context of Jeremiah, the Lord says that Rachel is weeping not because her children have died, 
She's weeping because they have been driven out of the promised land because of their sinfulness. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 18 says, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Now perhaps Matthew records this prophecy of Jeremiah with a dual purpose. To mark the deaths of these innocent children. So that Rachel is lamenting their senseless deaths. But also, so we see that she's lamenting the departure of her true son, Jesus, from Bethlehem to Egypt. Rachel was buried at Bethlehem. Her bones rested in the grave, somewhere near where these innocent children were slaughtered. These were, in a sense, her children. She can be said to have wept at their deaths. Matthew understands that even though in Jeremiah the Lord is saying that she is weeping because her children have been driven by the Lord into exile, now we understand that she also weeps because Jesus has been driven out of the promised land because of the murderousness of Herod and the sinfulness of God's people. Now Matthew's readers would have known that chapter 31 of Jeremiah is primarily about God turning weeping into gladness. And in the very next verse, verse 16, God commands the people to keep their voices from weeping because they will come back from the land of the enemy. And so the main point of Jeremiah 31 is that God will restore his people to the promised land. He will bring them home. And he will do this because he will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. As God says in chapter 31, 31. Rather than being a chapter filled with sadness and sorrow, chapter 31 of Jeremiah is the most hopeful chapter in the entire book of Jeremiah, which is a book full of weeping and sorrow. There is hope because the new covenant will be signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the third and the final point of our sermon today, the despised branch of Jesse. Joseph sought shelter in Egypt for Jesus and Mary. And in verses 19 and 20, we read that when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, telling him to return to Israel. Herod the Great was dead. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they came out of exile in Egypt. They returned to the promised land. But verse 22 says that when Joseph heard that Herod's son Archelaus was ruling over Judea, he was afraid to go there. Joseph was right to be troubled. Archelaus was... Uh, the son of his father. He shared all of his father's terrible instincts and might have sensed the same threat posed by Jesus to his throne that Herod sensed. And so Joseph was again given a revelation in a dream and he withdrew from Judea to Galilee. Now the Galilean district, which was still under the rule of another of Herod's sons, Antipas, was outside of the control of Archelaus and he, Antipas, was... Comparatively, relatively speaking, he was a saint compared to his father and his brother. Nazareth was a good place to settle. It was a quiet agricultural town of somewhere between 500 and 1,500 people. It was close to the larger town of Sephoras, which had burned to the ground. It burned to the ground very early in Jesus' childhood. And Antipas quickly began to rebuild this town, Sephoras. And that would have provided work for carpenters such as Joseph. But Matthew doesn't focus on the the logical reasons, the economical reasons for why Joseph settles in Nazareth. He focuses on the theological reasons. 
Verse 23 says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is the third time in 11 verses that Matthew has quoted prophecy. Here's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer out loud unless you're one of our children. Where do you find this prophecy in the Bible? Where do you find it? All right, no children is venturing an answer. You don't. There's not a single reference. There's no specific verse in the Old Testament that contains this prophecy. Now, if it's not obvious by now, if you were to continue on reading the book of Matthew, you will see that Matthew knows his Old Testament. Matthew is no dummy. Matthew did not make a mistake here. This is not some sort of error that Matthew made. He's not misquoting Scripture to deliberately mislead his readers. And his Jewish readers would have caught him in either case. Matthew introduces this quote differently than he has any of the previous words quoted by a prophet. Here he says, spoken by the prophets. In the previous four quotations he said, as it is written or spoken by the prophet. There he was referencing a specific quote by a specific prophet. Here he is referencing the general teaching of multiple prophets in the Old Testament. And he is probably also using a play on words. Now, as we know from Scripture, Nazareth was regarded as, as very, very poorly by those who were outside of Nazareth. Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 46 said of Jesus, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It apparently was a bit of a dump. It wasn't a great place to live. It was a small country town of no significance in flyover country. It was easily derided by those from more urban settings. A similar kind of rivalry exists today between those in the country and those in the city. And indeed, it was prophesied of Jesus that he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Nazareth seems like the perfect town for the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to come out of. Matthew quotes the prophets as saying that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Nazarene sounds very much like the Hebrew word netzer, which means branch, and is used in Isaiah 11, chapter 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Matthew is telling us here that the one who is called the Nazarene is the Messiah of Isaiah 53, who will be despised and rejected. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says of the Messiah, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like, the root, like a root out of the ground. Now the Hebrew word for branch isn't used there in Matthew 53, but this verse's connection to, to, uh, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 53, this verse's connection to Isaiah 11 is unmistakable. You can't read Isaiah 53 without seeing the connections back to Isaiah 11. Jesus is the shoot. Jesus is the branch that grows up from the stump of a tree that was thought to be long dead. And Jesus, that branch, was nearly cut off by Herod because Herod perceived him as a threat to his kingdom. And it's true. Jesus was a great threat to Herod's kingdom, but not in the way that Herod believed. Jesus did not come to sit on Herod's throne or any other earthly ruler's throne. But he's a threat. 
To believe in Jesus Christ is to accept and to acknowledge that He is your King. And so no matter if you happen to be an earthly king, you are not the true king. You're not the forever king. Your kingdom, your kingship, your rule is coming to an end at some point or another. The longest living, longest serving monarch on the face of the earth, she will die sometime soon. Not that I'm looking forward to it. I happen to like Queen Elizabeth quite a bit. But her king, her her kingdom, her rule shall have an end. But Jesus Christ will not. And so he is an inherent threat to those of us who would be kings or queens. To believe in Jesus Christ is to accept and acknowledge that he is your king, to accept and acknowledge that you will submit to his rule. And so to reject Jesus because you don't think you need him or because you think that he was no greater than any other religious leader or because he is a Nazarene is to despise him. And that is no less a sin than Herod's attempt to kill Jesus by murdering little babies. The outcome is going to be the same if you don't repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your king. You will endure eternal judgment for your sins. But here is the hope It's hard for us to imagine a worse sin than the slaughter of little babies. I know that's not necessarily regarded as a sin in the wider society, but I think it's safe to say that most of us regard that, if not all of us regard that, as a terrible sin. But even Herod, if he had repented of his sins and believed in the one he was trying to destroy, he would have been forgiven. Even Herod who had murdered half of his household and anyone who he had perceived as a threat to his kingdom, even Herod, had he repented and believed, he would have been forgiven. And he would have gone to be with the very one he had tried to destroy. You see, it's not enough simply to try and rehabilitate your image. Even 2,000 years hasn't been long enough, despite the best efforts of modern-day scholars, to make Herod sound somehow like a saint. And like Herod, if you die in your sins, you will be eternally punished in the fires of hell by the wrath of God. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. If by God's grace and His Spirit you are genuinely repentant in your heart for your sins, and if by God's grace you believe in Jesus Christ as your King, Not even the worst sins imaginable will be enough to prevent you from living forever with your king in heaven. That is the message that we must take to our neighbors. Our neighbors who perhaps have, under terrible advice, under pressure from their society, their family, the person who helped them to get in the way of women and have made that choice to have an abortion, we must bring to them this message of hope. Because the fact is that most women who do this, most women who make that choice, they are suffering. They know that what they did was not right. 
And they don't need more law heaped on them as if they could somehow use that law to change them. They need grace. They need the grace that only Jesus Christ can provide. And the church is the place on earth where that grace is most likely to be proclaimed. We must give them grace. Because grace, the grace as we have it in the Bible, it is the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been saved. We thank you that though our sins are as scarlet, that in Christ we have been washed white as snow. We thank you that his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, that it is effective. We are grateful for his righteousness, which is counted as our own by grace through faith. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to love Jesus, to love our neighbor, to to be messengers of hope, of truth, of righteousness, of good news. We pray, Lord, that you would send us out now with your blessing. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.